Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Civic Affairs, and I'm joined by the co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. On August the first, China will limit the exports on two rare earth metals. Gallium and germanium. These are almost magical minerals which are used in the most advanced technology: smartphones, hard drives, solar panels, semiconductors, and electric vehicles. And China has a stranglehold over the global market. Beijing says it's taking this step in the interests of security and national interest. Is the latest volley in the trade war on chips and semiconductors? Beijing's response to the U.S. plan to expand its already drastic semiconductor sanctions on China. To work out what all the fuss is about, today we're joined by two experts in rare earths: Martin Rasser, a former intelligence officer and analyst with the CIA, who is now the managing director of the Netherlands-based Dartena, and John Hikeway, the director and president of Stormcrow Capital in Toronto. John, let's start with you. Putting on my chemistry nerd hat for a second, rare earths—that's the fifteen lanthanides plus yttrium and scandium—aren't rare at all. One of them is more common than copper. They're just really hard to get in pure form. These rare earths seem incredibly important to the whole world, and yet we seem to be in a position where we now depend on China for the raw materials. Just how dependent is the rest of the world on China for rare earth elements? Unfortunately, Graham, I, I started studying the rare earths for purposes of relaying information to financial investors back in about 2009. And at the time, we were we were more than 95 percent, probably more than 98 percent, reliant on Chinese supplies.、Um, unfortunately, the situation hasn't shifted much. We have a couple of mines outside of China、um, in the form of Linus in Australia. Um, and and also in Malaysia, and、uh, and the Mountain Pass mine in California.、Uh, unfortunately, one of those mines still ships most of its product to China, and China continues to dominate processing as well as downstream manufacturing based on those rare earths. So the situation hasn't changed much. We're still. Depending on where you parse the supply chain, we're still more than ninety percent or ninety-five percent dependent on Chinese supply. But I mean, how did it come? The U.S. used to dominate. You mentioned Mountain Pass in California, and that used to be the dominant player in the world market.、Um, how did that shift? It was one of those circumstances that's largely based, in, in my estimation, on cost. The Chinese supply actually comes predominantly from from two places. In the northern area, there's there's some mines that produce iron ore,、um, particularly one very large one in Inner Mongolia, and that mine throws off a waste product that happens to be highly enriched in rare earth. So many many years ago, the Japanese started buying this waste product. The miner was very interested in finding out why the Japanese were buying their garbage, and when they did the analysis, they found out that this material contained large quantities of rare earths. So they looked into methods of processing it within China to build the local economy and to provide more jobs. And as a result, they are mining essentially tailings、um, and waste and turning it into something that is quite valuable. And as a result, 
it's very difficult for a purpose-built mine that extracts the material for no other reason than to process rare earth um, to try to compete with the cost base that's been set up in China. So, Martin, the um, reason that China's giving for this export ban, security and national interests, I mean, that seems very telling. But at what point did rare earths become a matter of national security for China? Well, it's been that way for quite some time. Um, you know, China first weaponized rare earths back in uh, 2010, 2011, uh, when Beijing had a territorial dispute with Tokyo over the Senkaku Islands. So they actually cut off exports to Japan um, in direct response to that dispute. That served as an initial wake-up call. Uh, so, for example, in, in Washington, the Department of Defense in particular um, became quite concerned about its dependence on Chinese sources, uh, as John described. But, you know, complacency set in and very little was ultimately done, as John pointed out, right? I mean, we're pretty much as dependent on China today as we were five years ago, 10 years ago. It flared up again uh, back in 2019. Um, this is when the uh, U.S.-China uh, competition really started heating up. And I think both sides at least um, indirectly realized that technology is going to be very much at the center of that strategic competition. And there were some threats in Chinese publications that, you know, Beijing may well cut off supplies again. Um, that really set in motion a whole new dialogue uh, in Washington and later in allied capitals that this dependency is is untenable and it's it's very much a national security risk. And now what we're seeing is at least a concerted discussion uh, to change things. And, you know, as John mentioned, yes, so we see some renewed uh, um, activity in mining outside of China, but the big bottleneck is processing and, and that's going to take time to build up. It's very expensive uh, given the, uh, the competition with China on cost that will require subsidies, industrial policy, basically. And that's not something that everyone is keen on. And then there's also the environmental concerns associated with it. Mining and processing of rare earths is a dirty business. Um, and that, that's another consideration. Uh, just environmental permitting in the United States, for example, has, has posed to be a, a, a barrier in the past. One thing that I'm sort of grappling to understand is at the moment, there seems that there's no alternative to China when it comes to rare earths. And even people like the Raytheon CEO, Greg Hayes, have said that. But Martin, you've described this move as um, a lot of bark and no bite. How is it possible that it has no bite if um, there are no alternatives to China in the supply chain? Well, I was referring specifically to the, the recent announcement on potential restrictions on uh, germanium and gallium. So that's a separate situation from the rare earths where, yes, germanium and gallium are important for certain types of semiconductors, but there are substitutes that can be used. And in this particular case, too, is I see it largely as a bluff on the part of Beijing because they ultimately need the products that are made with germanium and gallium as well. And, and they are not particularly good at making those. So they would just drive up the cost for themselves and constrain the supplies of the types of semiconductors that they need as well. So I, I don't see that as um, 
a very credible threat. More broadly speaking, this is something that um, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan pointed out as well, is it just once again underscores the, the risks of outsized dependence on China for these types of inputs. This will just provide more impetus for the United States, the European Union countries, UK, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Canada, to diversify their supplies and start investing in new mining and processing capabilities around the world. So, John, I mean, it's always dangerous when we try to look for rationality in these decisions. But, but why do you think they picked these two and not all the other ones that they could have chosen from? Like, why have they picked out these two uh, elements? Uh, Graham, I want to I want to raise a slightly sensitive point before I before I try to answer your question, and, sure. and that is that germanium and gallium would not properly be included as rare earths. They're rare metals. They're, to my mind, very important rare metals, but they're not rare earths proper. My opinion only: the reason that they've concentrated on these two in the form of germanium and gallium is. I would view it as a very focused response to some of the trade actions that have been taken by, by the, primarily by the U.S. administration over the last six or seven years. I view the, the U.S. Um, actions around the most modern, the most updated field programmable gate arrays, devices that are essentially they're semiconductor devices, but essentially what they are is a software programmable piece of hardware. So you go in and, and write a code for an FPGA that effectively configures connections between transistors. Sorry, what's an FPGA? It's called, a, it, Luisa, it's a field programmable gate array. It's, it's essentially a configurable computer. So it's a piece of hardware that comes with way too many connections between transistors, you can effectively configure those connections in any way that you want once, and then it becomes a, a purpose-built CPU doing exactly what you want it to do in a particular application. And they're very widely used in the cellular telephony industry. They, they, they form the, the core of a lot of these base stations that we all know and love because we can see the cell phone antennas sitting out there and it's what we use to communicate with a cell phone network. These things are the guts, the, the processing power that goes into these base stations. The United States decided to cut off access to the most, the most densely populated, the latest and greatest versions of these FPGAs because they're made by Western companies. And Chinese companies like Huawei depended on these things for inclusion in their 5G base stations. The excuse given at the time was some of these FPGAs find their way into the Chinese military and they're used in various weapons systems. Okay, maybe yes, maybe no. But what it really looked like to me was a very focused strike at the Chinese dominance and pending dominance as we move to higher and higher frequencies in 5G base stations. What the Chinese have done here is effectively say, if we can't have those, then you can't have gallium and germanium, but you can't have the gallium that is required to build certain semiconductors like microwave power amplifiers in our phones and in those cellular telephony base stations. 
there are specific circuits called microwave power amplifiers that take the signals that those computers have carefully shaped, but are teeny weeny little signals that frankly wouldn't reach 100 meters from the base station. And they have to amplify them up to many watts of power to be broadcasted out of antennas so that they can reach our cellular telephones and that, again, we can basically use those base stations. In effect, what the Chinese were saying through this is, I think, let's negotiate around the availability of these components. Let's negotiate around the availability of this material. If you can't, if, if we can't have our 5G base stations and our development in 5G technology, then you can't either. And so it was a very, very focused response. Now, the, the broader category of rare earths, Graham, and, and what we do around those, very different questions. Um, the rare earths themselves are important, very important in the development of a lot of green technologies, specifically in, in the development of really powerful, really compact electric motors. And again, if we don't have those and in a ready supply and at a decent price, the automotive industry isn't going to use them. I mean, Martin, you spoke about the weaponization of these elements, but surely everybody loses out when there's, you know, sort of almost like hostage taking of elements as is going on now. Well, yeah, I mean, the economic impact of a constrained supply chain of rare earths is going to be devastating, right? I mean, you will have to think about how essential these raw materials are to modern society. Uh, all our electronics depend on rare earths to run. Um, and this includes our computers, our phones, critical equipment such as uh, medical devices, like a pacemaker, green energy technology. So our wind turbines, for example, require those and a lot of our military platforms. All these systems and components require rare earths. And so then, yes, the, the ripple effects of that are, are huge. But um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to, uh, to some of the points that John was making. So I, I view the reason why Beijing did this a little differently, because they announced it right after the Dutch government confirmed uh, what their export controls would be. This is uh, largely in tandem with the export controls that the United States announced on October 7th of last year. And those pertain specifically to graphics processing units, uh, so GPUs uh, for short, which are used for AI applications, particularly uh, they are useful for training deep learning models. But there was also uh, considerable restrictions placed on the export of semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Um, and that in particular is then poses a significant hurdle for Beijing's ambitions to, to build a world-class semiconductor industry. And subsequent to that, the Japanese and Dutch governments announced similar export controls. Those three countries together for semiconductor manufacturing equipment, they control over 90% of the global market. And so that's a huge blow to uh, Beijing's long-term goals of greater self-sufficiency in that entire industry. So that's why, in part, why I called these um, potential restrictions on germanium and gallium big bark, little bite, because it's completely disproportionate to the impact of the export controls that, that Beijing is grappling with right now. And it shows you know, ultimately how little options Beijing has at its disposal to, to credibly respond to that. Now, for rare earths more generally, yeah, if Beijing were to go down that path, it's, it's 
you know, people have described it as the nuclear option, right? It, it, it would be a, a huge deal, but it would also accelerate this concept of de-risking where supply chains are designed to be less dependent on China or not dependent on China at all in this case. And if uh, Beijing were to go down this path, that would be the trigger for a huge acceleration in this whole de-risking, decoupling process, because at that point, China would not be, no one could argue that they are a reliable supplier anymore. And that long-term outcome uh, is not what Beijing wants, right? They want to build less dependence on foreign tech while ensuring greater dependence by foreign countries on some of their key inputs. That would throw that strategy uh, completely out of the water. I mean, how close are we to Beijing going down that route? What are the prospects for that kind of nuclear moment? Yeah, I would consider the a low probability, high impact scenario where it's at this point quite unlikely to happen. But because of the implications of such an action, it, it behooves the allied governments to, to think about how to mitigate that ultimately. And, that, and that's what we're seeing now with efforts to open up new mines and processing facilities in, for example, Australia and, and the United States. I, I think Martin and I are going to disagree on how focused, unfocused, meaningful, not meaningful, the moves on germanium and gallium are. My opinion doesn't change. I, I view it as an extremely focused response to the questions around cellular telephony network development and, and standard development moving forward. On the on the rare earth question, though, I think I think it's it's good to to look more broadly at what you want to accomplish in a trade war. I, I think we all remember the forty fifth president of the United States standing up and explaining to all of us that trade wars are good and easy to win. And, and when he did that, I've got to tell you, I wasn't sure whether to cringe or to laugh. I think I did something in between that probably looked like I was having a seizure. Um, but it was it was one of those comments that was just kind of painful to hear. A trade war is exactly what Martin described. It is, it, frankly, it's like a military war. It's the last thing that you really want to do. But if you're going to engage in it, then what you want to do is you want to create a situation where you're doing asymmetric damage to the opponent that you're facing. You want to damage their economy much more than it damages your own. If the Chinese cut off gallium and germanium, in effect, what they're doing is they're cutting off a raw material. And that raw material, both of them are actually produced as byproducts. So there are no, there's no gigantic primary gallium mine in China. And, and where gallium comes from and where germanium come from is the processing of other ores for other metals. So either you're processing bauxite and you're making aluminum, and as a result, you're extracting a tiny, tiny, tiny byproduct of gallium, or you're processing zinc and you're extracting a tiny, tiny byproduct of, of germanium. And you're able to sell those materials to companies that then take them, turn them into a semiconductor, purify the living heck out of them, cut them up into wafers and then ship them to a semiconductor manufacturer. If you cut that off, is that going to result in the loss of a very meaningful number of jobs? The answer is 
frankly, you probably assign a government department to go and buy the byproduct that's coming out of those facilities, keep those people employed and stick it in a pile somewhere because it's not very much material. It's not meaningfully costly. If you looked at the broader rare earths, where are you going to cut off export? No, no raw rare earths can leave the country. Well, fine, but the importation of raw rare earths to the United States is not particularly meaningful anyway. Mostly those rare earths from China are brought in in the form of finished chemical products, finished magnets, or even complete electric motors and assemblies. So do you then cut off all of the people in China who are producing the motors, the assemblies, the vehicles that they go into, the electronic devices that contain them? I would say no, because that would be a significant economic burden on China itself. So when, when, this, when the original trade action happened that sort of focused everyone's attention on rare earths back in 2010 and 2009, the reason, the ostensible reason for taking that trade action was to try to boost rare earth prices. Let's be honest in the other direction and say that it was a rather poorly conceived trade system in that it didn't differentiate between rare earths. It said a ton of rare earth counts towards your quota, whether it's a ton of lanthanum that gets exported for $1,000 cost, or it's a ton of lutetium that gets exported for a million dollars cost. It didn't really matter in, in that scheme. And that created its own problems, obviously, but that system is gone now. Um, do the Chinese want to repeat that at an even greater scale? No. And, and I've done some work recently that suggests that, because one of the questions I've been asked is, but is it possible that China would use so much of the rare earths, perhaps so much of neodymium and praseodymium that go into these very powerful magnets and make really, really compact, powerful electric motors that they just wouldn't have any to export. And the answer there appears as well to be no. There's, there's more than enough room to increase production in China. And frankly, the amount being used in something like the automotive industry, even globally, is, is not of a scale that it would trouble that particular industry if they wanted to manufacture enough. So, you know, on the rare earth side, I just don't see it being a good trade war weapon for China. There are much better weapons that they could access if they wanted to engage in the in the quote unquote nuclear option. Now, on trade. it's not often I get, I get to engage in lanthanide fantasy football, Martin. But, you know, if, if you were going to pick rare earths uh, to ban, uh, which one would you pick? This is really my only chance. Oh, oh no. You were going to ask a really nerdy chemical question. Well, look, I, I, you know, I mean, basically, John, John's named the two that I would pick. But, uh, you know, Martin, what's your pick? Because, I mean, there is at least one former minister who's threatened that these two are just the start if the West keeps targeting the high tech sector. So, you know, there is some institutional support to do this, even if it's a really bad idea. I mean, what what do you think might be next on the block if you're going to pick two? Well, gosh. Um, so I don't know about specific materials, but, you know, again, if you look at it from Beijing's perspective, if you really want people in Washington to pay attention, focus on those that the U.S. Department of Defense is most dependent on China on and start there. Right. Uh, so if you start constraining the U.S. defense industry's ability to make certain components for key platforms, 
that will get people's attention. You know, and that's why you know the EU is updating its critical mineral strategy in order to figure out ways to have greater resilience and diversity in, in its supply chains. Japan, South Korea, Australia, they're all doing the same. It's part of a much broader puzzle where we have to think about in terms of globalized supply chains, you know, where do you want to make adjustments so that you don't have this outside risk that we're facing across so many areas. And that, that's going to define geopolitics for decades to come because it has huge economic repercussions as well. And we're already seeing a rise uh, in economic benefit in countries like, like Vietnam, for example, um, as manufacturing is being replaced. And that's all part of this this broader story. But rare earths are very much at the center of, of this now, shit. Now, obviously, you can't sort of share your financial advice, but, I mean, surely the big beneficiaries of this are uh, any any companies in the West who happen to be making rare earths. I mean, are, they, are their stock prices going to go through the roof? Yeah, eventually, sure. I mean, again, there's a long way to go for you know non-Chinese firms to be true viable entities right in this industry uh, you know as john mentioned it's extremely challenging the cost competition uh, the work itself is challenging uh, there's a, a dearth in in know-how in the united states right when it comes particularly on the processing front since that hasn't really taken place in the united states for decades now so relearning how to do these things uh, and oh, by the way, Chinese companies have patented a lot of the most advanced capabilities in this. So then do you license that technology from them or do you focus on developing your own techniques uh, to, to bypass the IP that's already protected? So it's hugely complex. It will require government backing. There's mixed emotions about doing that. A lot of people believe it flies in the face of free market principles, and to a certain extent, yes, that's accurate. But then from a national security standpoint, is that then what it takes in order to, to build up that resilience? I personally think the, the best way forward on this issue is for governments uh, such uh, of countries such as you know, Canada, Australia, the United States, and some of the European countries to, to really collaborate on this issue, right, where we start working together, figuring out where the, the best mining opportunities are. Uh, Greenland, for example, has massive deposits that are increasingly accessible due to warming temperatures. I think a, uh, a, col a collaborative approach by like-minded governments um, brings much better odds of success than individual countries trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China on this particular issue. But that, I mean, that sounds like something that would take years probably decades uh, are we facing a situation where there might be bottlenecks in supply because of these sort of threats to shut off various minerals and there are no other sources and it will take too long to sort of s set up those systems and supply chains no i mean it, it shouldn't take decades i mean you know it's a it's a a fairly simple problem in the sense that we we know where good deposits are. We know that processing in particular is a, is the big bottleneck, and it's more a matter of the political will and the willingness to spend considerable amounts of money to make it happen. It, so 
this is something like if we started in earnest today, five years from now, it would be a much improved situation. I'd love to hear from John specifically on, you know, how we build up as fast as we can. But um, there's there's no reason um, for uh, the allied governments to be in the position that they are in today. I, I agree with you, Martin. I think the more pertinent question is how. Luis, as you were asking your last question, I thought back to, to two little anecdotes um, that kind of illustrate the illogic on both sides of the question. So after the last rare earth debacle that, frankly, China imposed on itself um, through its ministries, when they put the quota system in place, and, and what ended up happening was rare earth prices skyrocketed for a period of time. And then as the prices skyrocketed, people discovered substitutes around some of these areas. And what happened, of course, is demand crashed. And then shortly thereafter, prices crashed. And it took a decade for those prices to come back to anything approaching reasonable levels because China was perceived as a potential unreliable trade partner. I was asked by some of the rare earth companies in China, what would you do to build back the market to try to get us back to where we were. And my response is, you need to be seen as a reliable counterparty in transactions. Why don't you put a warehouse somewhere outside of China? Okay, a warehouse, 10, 15, I don't care how many it takes, but put it somewhere not on Chinese soil. And what you do is you sell rare earth materials into that warehouse and it acts as a stockpile. Now, in effect, you, you're owning these companies in foreign jurisdictions, so you're essentially trading to yourself. But the point is, there would be umpty-ump tons of neodymium and umpty-ump tons of praseodymium and umpty-ump tons of, of terbium sitting offshore. You could then contract with buyers and say, okay, we're going to put a contract in place that has that has a floor and it has a ceiling, and we're going to make sure that prices stay in a reasonable range. And you've got two years or three years or four years of guaranteed supply in our ex-China warehouses. You can rely on us. We are good partners and all of the rest. And there was nodding and nodding and nodding across the table. And they said, but John, if the prices go as high as they did back then, this would mean we miss out. And I said, Yes, that's the entire point of the scheme. You're not going to come in and make a super economic profit on the basis of an artificial shortage. You're going to make sure there is no artificial shortage and the prices don't go out of that range. And they nodded and they looked at one another and they spoke and they said, but if the prices go high, we'll miss out. And I went, okay, so much for that being an idea that they'll ever take seriously. Um, on the other side, I had a, an American company that was producing and planned to produce a particular rare earth, quasi-rare earth yttrium from a rather weird source, but, but essentially a recycled material. It was going to be pure, it was going to be lovely, they could, you know, any industry could use it. And one of the places that rare earths show up that most of us aren't aware of is in our car, but not in some exotic place like a main electric motor. It's in the paint. It's in the base coats, the primers that go on the car. If anybody wonders why, when you were young, cars rusted out from under you while you were driving them down the road, and now they don't, it's in the formulation of some of these layers of paint, and it's, and it's due to the inclusion of some of these rare earths. 
So I went to a very well-known paint manufacturer and said, we have a domestic supply of yttrium for you, you know, diversifying you away from the Chinese supply chain, giving you, you know, an alternate point of supply, keep prices honest and all of the rest. And the answer that I got back was, that sounds fantastic. We're on board with all of that. What kind of a discount compared to Chinese price can they give us? And my answer was, well, I mean, at minimum, they were hoping to sell at parity because their costs are slightly higher. Discount. I mean, no, I, I don't think they could make money if they sell it at a discount. And the answer was, oh, well, then not interested. The issue that we face in mining generally, especially in critical materials, is uncertainty. Investors in the space, investors in any space, they abhor uncertainty. They want a an absolutely massive return with no risk is what they're looking for. Now, they're never going to find it because that prices itself out of the market nearly immediately, even if it existed. But what the government can do is rather than pass out tiny little grants to help projects build, get to a point where they need a construction financing to actually go into production and then turn to the market and, and the market shrugs and says, yes, but we don't know what the market's going to look like. We don't know if your project is going to compete well with the other 11 projects that are out looking for money right now. So we're just going to sit on our hands and not give you anything. What the government could do is pick a few projects, do the analysis, hire experts that understand, pick a few projects that look extremely promising and go to them. And instead of slapping, you know, a million dollars on them for research and saying, okay, that's, you know, that's going to help you along, but it won't get you into production turn to them and say, all right, we have a government critical materials stockpile now. Here is an off-take agreement, okay? We will buy up to this amount of material from you at a price that's market-driven with a floor in place and a ceiling in place and the like for a typical off-take agreement. But if you get into production, you have a customer. It'll be the U.S. government, it'll be the Canadian government, it'll be the EU, whoever it is buy these materials. Martin, right at the beginning, you were talking about how China got to be so dominant and how back in 2010 with the Japanese, we had already had a kind of rehearsal of what is happening now. And what John was just saying, it seemed that the focus was all about, basically about greed. <laughs> Nobody was willing to invest in diversifying their rare earth sources. The really big question that I had is, both of you keep saying there are ways that this can happen, it doesn't take that long, there are sources elsewhere, but I, I don't really understand why it hasn't happened until now. Well, the, the issue is that, you know, as soon as there's a non-Chinese entrant into the market, you know, Beijing manipulates the prices, drives the, the prices down so far that it's just not economical for a non-Chinese firm to, to be viable in the industry. It's the same playbook that we've seen with aluminum and solar panels and so many other of those key inputs. It's just Chinese mercantilism at work. And that's why there, there has to be sustained government support for non-Chinese firms to enter into this space and why I think it, it behooves the, the tech-leading democracies to collaborate on this. You know, Japan's reaction, um, and this is, I think, an interesting one and one that um, we should capitalize on, is uh, develop some uh, 
sophisticated recycling techniques, right? And then, you know, as John mentioned, there's there's rare earths everywhere already in finished products too. A lot of that ends up in landfills. There are ways to extract rare earths that have been used previously in finished goods. Increased research in that front can help us utilize the rare earths that we already have in products we don't use anymore. We can reuse those. Another area, um, and this is something that the U.S. Department of Energy did some interesting work in uh, 10, 15 years ago, is developing synthetic materials that have the same properties as some rare earths. So, for example, uh, the DOE had uh, research that resulted in substitutes for uh, europium and terbium, uh, which is used in um, LEDs and flat panel displays. And they also developed techniques to sharply reduce the need for neodymium and dysprosium in electric motors. Imagine a concerted effort where uh, something like CERN, for example, where you have different governments providing R&D money for this type of research to reduce our need for mining and processing altogether. I think that that's the ultimate long-term play, right? If you don't have to depend on extraction at all anymore. Now, that's obviously work of probably several decades, but you can start seeing what a three-pronged strategy would be, right? Where in the near term, you focus on mining and processing outside of China, at the same time working on improved recycling techniques to extract maximum value of what you already have in longer term yes try and reduce your your dependence on on mining altogether uh, that that's from a geopolitical uh, standpoint and from a, a just an economic security standpoint uh, the the most uh, desirable place to be over the long term can i jump in and just say uh, martin you made some good points and 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 I think from my perspective, though, I'm, I'm going to have to disagree. Um, I don't see back in the 2010 period, the rare earth industry in China was dominated by private companies. And I can tell you, having spoken to them and spoken to private companies in China and a bunch of different industries, trying to organize them to do something is like herding cats. It's It's nearly impossible. Um, it, it, they are in such, um, uh, knockdown drag of competition with one another that to try to get them to collude on pricing, everybody will agree in a meeting and everybody will nod. And then they'll go out and undercut one another to try to win market share. As long as they're making a dime, they, they are going to, they're going to cut one another to bits. The, the rare earth industry in China today is probably better able to manipulate pricing because it's state-owned enterprise dominated. But I would say I've seen the opposite. Um, for example, we had a period of sustained high prices not that long ago in rare earths. And the question that arose was, uh, amongst people who were commenting on the space, as I was, was why? I mean, there's, there's not that much demand. Supply is as high as it's ever been. I mean, we can see what the demand is, right? Because we can see the number of new energy vehicles that are being manufactured, the amount of rare earth that goes into these motors and all of the rest. And we were sitting there going, why are prices so high? And the answer was because the state-owned enterprises were making money on it and there was no reason to lower the prices. It actually took the ministry stepping in and there was a press release in which they effectively said, come on, guys, time for the prices to come down. And they did. They dropped back to reasonable historical levels. 
that are still good at making a profit. There's no issue there. But they, it took it took some prodding publicly from the outside, from the ministries, to basically say, bring these prices back in line or else. And the companies moved. The biggest problem on our side, um, and, and, and the one thing I will say is recycling, great concept. We should do more of it, no doubt about it. Urban mining in that form is, is a fantastic way to get a very rich product into a pipeline and, and be able to produce decent stuff at a cheap price. But with the growth that we're experiencing in the automotive sector and the demand for rare earths, you can't take this pile of recycled available material and turn it into this. I mean, it's as simple as that. We're going to need primary mining for a very long period of time. The best way to build a supply chain outside of China is to do two things. Reduce the risk in the, in the view of the financial investors who have to step in, because unless you want to move to a Chinese system, it's going to be financial investors that build these mines, build these processing companies and the like. It's not going to be the US government, the EU or anybody else. These are not big markets. They're not huge money makers for companies. And it's we're going to have to find a way to put some emphasis on these things or we're just not going to get this development done. So, uh, just briefly, I'd like to, to dig a bit more into the domestic politics of the Chinese side of the equation because that's kind of where it fell over in 2010 for them is that they assumed they had control over what the domestic players were going to do, but they didn't. I mean, they basically had a, a huge spike in everyone going out and trying to extract rare earths. I mean, who are the domestic players politically in China be, behind this ban and and what are their motivations? I mean, is it companies? Is it ministries? Who's, uh, who's driving this, do you think? You know, what we've seen under Xi Jinping is the party exerting much greater control over industry. Um, you know, John mentioned a lot of these uh, rare earths firms are already state-owned enterprises, and we've seen uh, Xi having absolutely no qualms about uh, exerting greater control over ostensibly private companies as well. Um, ultimately, all these companies have to do the bidding of the party, and then that is much more so the case under Xi Jinping than it has been for, for quite some time. There's been a lot of uh, crackdown on uh, some of the illegal exports um, that John was referring to earlier. So the the party's ability to you know dictate to companies how they will behave in this market, how much mining and processing they will do, and how much they will sell abroad, um, they have much greater control over that now uh, than they did. Um, you know, the last time um, back in 2010, 2011, when, when this was an issue. So um, if Beijing does decide to move forward and put considerable constraints on the exports of these materials to um, certain Western companies or, or just countries as a whole, yeah, it'll be much more impactful this time around. Beijing has relatively few levers of this kind. Rare earths and critical minerals are, are one of the big ones. And you can already see a strategy taking shape where they're trying to expand that control. Uh, Myanmar, for example, uh, their exports to China of raw materials has increased significantly uh, just in the past year. So you already see Beijing making moves in other countries uh, for rare earths, but also things like uh, lithium and copper. You know, there's a 
huge Chinese presence in Africa and South America to gain control over these critical deposits. We're just in an initial chapter of what is going to be a, a decades-long competition over uh, ultimate control of these uh, key supply chains. Yeah, so coming back to that that point that we were talking about right in the beginning about that nuclear option, which could be devastating. I mean, I'm just going to ask you to do the thing that people hate doing, but what do you think the percentage chance is that this is just the first chapter, that we're going to see export bans on other rare minerals in the years to come? If the American administration continues as it is with its, with its current political bent, I'm going to say 5% that we're going to get into a, into a more protracted and, and escalating trade war. Because I think what you're going to see here is a gradual backing away. Um, the Chinese signaled with the germanium and gallium announcement. Most people didn't read it all the way through. They just read the first part that said, by you know, on August 1st, we will restrict exports of these materials. They didn't read to the end that said, oh, by the way, you can apply for an export license, and it will be granted on a case-by-case basis. So there was an off-ramp built into the announcement saying, if we decide to allow foreign companies to continue exporting these materials, we can. It was an open invitation to let's talk. And those discussions, I think, started to take place. I think what you'll see is a relaxing of some of the rules around those field programmable gate arrays that I mentioned earlier. They'll be able to flow to China through a different route. There won't be any relaxing on modern semiconductor manufacturing equipment. I would doubt, but it'll be a thaw. There'll be something that happens that allows germanium and gallium to continue to flow out and more circuits to continue to go into China so that they can better deal with their own 5G networks and their own standard development moving forward. If the administration changes in the US and you end up with more of a Republican bent, the Republicans seem hell-bent on making the Chinese an enemy for reasons that I don't quite understand. Um, I think there's a there's a much higher probability that we're going to escalate the trade war. I put that at like 25% at that point. And I think that's just bad globally. Uh, Martin, what about you? What do you think? How high would you rate the chances of movement towards that nuclear option? Well, the the nuclear option as a whole, so a, a full ban on exports, I consider to be highly unlikely. Um, it, it would have... Your relations between uh, China and the United States and and other allied countries would have to become very very bad in order for that to happen. So I, I would consider that very unlikely. Um, some targeted uh, export controls on individual rare earths or other critical minerals. Uh, yeah, I could see that happen for specific end users uh, just to send a signal to use that as leverage in negotiations. China has so much to lose if it truly weaponizes these exports that I, I think they would think very hard and long about when and how to, to use that, that leverage. Martin, John, thanks for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, this was really great. I really enjoyed it. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. 
Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong. Our music is by Susie Wilkins and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danto. Bye for now.